Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Today, we are really excited to be joined by a special guest, our friend Ben Rhodes. As many of our listeners know, Ben served as the Deputy National Security Advisor to President Barack Obama, one of the only advisors to serve in the White House from the beginning of the Obama presidency to the very end. Ben was one of President Obama's closest confidants, senior advisors, and very strong policymaker. He was part of some of the most consequential foreign policy decisions and initiatives during the president's time in office, including negotiations with Cuba, which resulted in the historic normalization of relations and the creation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran and where I worked with them on the opening to Burma. After leaving government, though, Ben has kept very busy. In 2018, he published The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House, which quickly became a New York Times bestseller, an outstanding book. He's also founded National Security Action and has become a contributor for Crooked Media, NBC News, and MSNBC. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. It's great, great to, be to be here. Yeah, good to see you guys. Um, you know, Ben, when we think about your career, and Kurt and I both had the pleasure and good fortune of, of working with you in the White House, but you did a full eight years in the White House. You did almost two years on the, yeah. on the campaign. <laughs> Um, Don't recommend that, by the yeah, way. Yeah. A, it, it was a lot. Um, just give uh, listeners a sense, if they don't know, how did how did this even happen? You must have a lot of young people come up to you and yeah. say, I, I want to do what you did. Yeah. Um, give us a sense of how this even got started. Well, I always tell young people that if I had a plan to be in the White House, I never would have gotten there. Um, <laughs> I didn't. Um, I was in a totally different track. I was getting a MFA in fiction writing when I was 24, which... If I'd known how much grief I'd get from the Republican Party about that over the years, I I never got it. But after 9-11, I I witnessed 9-11. I was in New York and I saw the attack unfold and and I wanted to be a part of what was going to happen next. And I came down to D.C. looking to get into journalism, actually, and got hired as a speechwriter on a reference uh, by Lee Hamilton, who was the uh, head of the Wilson Center at the time. And, you know, I worked for him for five or six years, and he was kind of a mentor figure for me. And I knew I was getting a lot out of the experience. He was co-chair of the 9-11 Commission, the Iraq Study Group. So in my 20s, I, I, I found myself in this unique position involved in kind of the autopsies of these two uh, gigantic events, uh, the Iraq War and 9-11. And I became frustrated that, you know, you could make all the recommendations in the world, but if the people in charge didn't change, if the politics didn't change, uh, you wouldn't get different outcomes. And so I I wanted to get involved in politics and I wanted to work for Barack Obama. And I kind of went to work on his campaign for free. You know, like uh, a lot of people who are thinking about trying to get on a campaign, I just showed up and said I'd do whatever they wanted me to do uh, with some of our friends, uh, Dennis McDonough and Mark Lippard. Right. Uh, and I kind of worked my way into the campaign as a speechwriter. And, uh, you know, all I cared about was getting him elected. I wasn't even thinking about a job. And obviously <laughs> that led to a lot of experiences that I, I never would have imagined having. And and once you, you know, I'm fast forwarding over so many yeah. interesting events and 
in fact, you and I got to know each other uh, when you were on our Iraq yeah. study group. And then you actually have a fascinating account here of coming in to, to brief and prep Hillary Clinton for her confirmation yeah, yeah, hearings yeah. at the State Department. I remember yeah. sitting around um, yeah. that table as well. But I'm just going to fast forward into kind of your not only early role, but a role you really held for the duration, which was, you know, architect of the trips, you yeah. know, uh, the planning, the process, where the president would go, what he would say, what the objective was. Um, was there an overarching operating principle to the trips to the, how do you think about it? And, and did it evolve over the time? Yeah, it, it was my favorite part of the job. Um, and the reason why is, you know, particularly any U.S. president is going to have a huge impact wherever they go, but particularly Barack Obama. Um, we had a you know feeling that he, he meant something to people around the world, particularly in the developing world, particularly minority groups, particularly you know, civil society people doing the kind of community organizing that he did. And, you know, we recognized that just going to a country and doing a bilateral meeting with the head of state and, you know, maybe even giving a speech you know, was not going to connect to people in the way that they wanted to be seen. They wanted to be connected to Obama. And so everywhere we went, we tried to design a mix of official business, but also sitting down with civil society, doing something cultural, doing a town hall with young people, trying to engage a cross-section of the society that we were in. And what you recognize is that those interactions were what would really matter on the trip, right? <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I remember first time we went to India, you know, um, we went to a school in kind of an underprivileged part of Mumbai, and he and Mrs. Obama we're talking to some kids and it kind of morphed into them dancing together, right, you know, right. and in a country of over a billion people, the images that they were going to take away from that trip, you know, we're not the bilateral meeting with Prime Minister Singh. It was going to be him among people who look like them. Right. Um, fast forward to 2016, when we went to Vietnam, um, when he sat down with Anthony Bourdain and had a, a bowl of bun cha at a kind of ordinary noodle stall um, in Hanoi. That's all anybody was talking about. <laughs> but again, it, it actually, it adds to our foreign policy. It, it, because the United States uniquely, uh, I think, is able to uh, reach out to and, and, and connect with people from anywhere because they know that people live in our country who are from everywhere. Um, and that, that helps our foreign policy in, in the sense that it opens up space for new kinds of cooperation, say, with a country like Vietnam. And I think it also has an intangible impact you know, what are all those people going to do? <laughs> you know, uh, you know. particularly, I've thought about this a lot, Rich, as I've seen Trump kind of taking apart some of our legacy. Well, a big part of a president's legacy is, is what are the people going to do that he inspired around the world? Right. What are they doing with their lives? Right. Uh, those people who may become prime ministers or heads of businesses or NGOs. Um, and, and we were always trying to pay attention to that dynamic when we would sit down and kind of scope out, okay, what's yeah, the schedule? I, you know, Kurt and I were fortunate to see that firsthand. Um, you know, in different parts of, of Asia, for, for me in India, especially, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. There's a legacy there that it, it's hard to measure. Just one more question on this. How much were you trying to break out of the traditional foreign policy box as well? It seemed like a lot of the early trips, especially if you think about the Cairo speech, yeah. the other um, uh, engagements were about, you know, this was a new approach. It was also post 
Iraq, yeah. uh, and you were trying to repair a lot of uh, damage that had been done. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of dimensions to that. I mean, one is that, you know, the United States is a complicated force in people's lives around the world. And we felt as we came into office, the twin catastrophes of the Iraq war and the financial crisis really kind of defined what America was. Uh, and uh, we wanted to kind of reset that. Um, and if you look at that first year, we gave a major speech. It wasn't just in Cairo, and frankly, everywhere we went to try to kind of reset. Here's who we are. Here's what our story is. Here's what we stand for. And try to connect to the aspirations that people have. You know, American presidents spend a lot of time talking overseas about things that people don't really care about. You know, they don't care that much about terrorism and, and nuclear weapons. You know, they care about whether they can have opportunity in their lives or whether or not their societies are fair, uh, whether or not they can get an education. And, and Obama represented those aspirations because he had come from nothing uh, to where he, where he got. Um, and so we wanted to tell a, a new story uh, about what America was. Uh, and we also wanted to, to kind of get out of the, the elite bubble um, in countries and show that, you know, we would go places that maybe their own political leaders didn't even go. Mm -hmm. You know, we do a town hall in Africa. And I remember the main thing I'd hear from some of the young Africans is none of our leaders would ever even talk to us, never mind taking questions from us. Right. Um, or we go to Brazil and we went to a favela. And they said, well, nobody's ever come here before, you know. And, and again, I think there's an intrinsic value in that in showing what democracy looks like and what value of human dignity looks like. And uh, again, I think that the tail to that kind of outreach, uh, you know, takes years uh, to come to fruition. But I still feel like it's an investment that will be paying off. Ben, with the uh, benefit of time, we've had an opportunity to, to look back at our own experience in government and reflect on what we did and uh, what uh, history teaches us. I'm curious that my conversations with you during our time in government were primarily about government effort in Asia. Mm -hmm. And I was concerned, and I think many were, that we had overinvested in the Middle East and yeah. South Asia. I know that was the conversations that you and I had, and that part of what we were trying to do is to redirect um, our dominant efforts more towards other regions that perhaps had greater benefits in terms of prosperity and possibility in the future. As you look back on that period, do you think we did enough? I mean, I, I think we did. Um, and you know, I think we had this basic recognition from the get-go that one of the things that happened in the decade post 9-11 dominated by Iraq is we'd, we'd missed <laughs> where the action was taking off, which was Asia. I'll, I'll never forget in 2009 going to the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. And, you know, it had fallen apart. It was a mess. Uh, we weren't going to get this global climate agreement. And we were trying to figure out, you know, why this thing was so fractured. And, and Obama was trying to find Wen Jiabao, the premier of China. And they were literally ducking us. And we were also trying to find the leaders of the other major <laughs> emerging economies. And we finally just decided to, to go find the Chinese. And we walk into this room and the Chinese security is literally trying to keep us out and actually kind of pummeled me to the ground because <laughs> I'm a small guy and Secret Service was protecting Obama. But when we went inside, what we found that the Chinese were trying to hide is that they were chairing a meeting with India, Brazil, South Africa, and Russia. They had more votes in their pocket at that conference than we did. They had the entire developing world block. Uh, and they were the ones standing away progress. But the, the lesson was also, you know, back in the US, there's a debate, is China rising? China had risen before yeah. we came into office, right? And I do think we did a lot and enough over the seven, eight years to, to, to refocus on Asia. 
with one mistake, which is I think we waited too long to close TPP. Um, we kept holding out to get a better and better deal, which is what you do in a negotiation. But TPP was really the centerpiece of the architecture that we were trying to build in Asia, as you know, Kurt. And by the time it was done and ready for Congress, and we had you know, trade authority that would allow it to pass with a, a simple majority, we were too deep in the political season. And we assumed that the Republican leadership, because they're Republicans, would still let us take this to a vote. And we had enough Democratic votes in our pocket to get it done. But of course, what we didn't recognize is not only was Hillary Clinton going to disavow TPP, um, we could manage that. We could probably still cobble together the Democrats, but that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were going to be afraid yeah. to take it up because of Donald Trump's emergence. And so the biggest mistake um, was really just one of timing that uh, you, if we could have moved that calendar up a year, um, you know, probably would have had to take a, a deal that maybe had you know, two or three less concessions that we'd squeeze out of people. Uh, we might not have lost the opportunity, the window to close that. specific issue, Ben, that I was most impressed by your really direct action on was on Burma, was on Myanmar. Uh, from a very early period, you decided this is one of the things that you're going to work on. You worked behind the scenes to get Congress uh, more engaged with an approach that would be about uh, opening up possibilities for Myanmar. Uh, it's been a hard issue for me to look back on. I had a lot of high hopes for what could be achieved. And I think over time, we could still see uh, progression in the yeah. society. But how do you see it as you look at it from this repose? Well, first of all, I, I think we'd made the right decisions. Um, you know, it's very rare that you see a window opening at a country like yeah. that. And we weren't opening it. Uh, the, the Burmese military was make, taking decisions in 2010, 11, and 12 that were quite dramatic, you know, freeing political prisoners, opening up space for, for media, welcoming the returned exile community, which is significant, and some of this with our urging and pressing, and of course, releasing Aung San Suu Kyi from, from house arrest. And, and when that happens, you got to take advantage of the opportunity and do whatever you can to, to test whether this can accelerate and can we connect a place like Myanmar to the global economy? And can we uh, try to give support to people who are pushing the direction of a, a more democratic system? The rights enjoyed by ordinary people in that country undeniably were changing for the better. They could speak more freely. They could assemble more freely. Um, and obviously then Aung San Suu Kyi uh, coming to power through an election. Like you, the most difficult thing to watch since I've left government it has been, you know, the ethnic cleansing of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Rohingya uh, from the Muslim minority, particularly in 2017. And, you know, first of all, uh, I do feel like we managed that issue for years. We didn't fix it, but it took a, a whole lot of effort. And sometimes in government, you just spend a lot of effort to prevent the worst thing from yeah, happening. Yeah, manage right? an issue. And I think people don't, you know, the, 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 the amount of time from the president of the United States to the secretary of state down to people like me, certainly people like you, and people at state, pressing this issue, engaging it, raising it, raising it with the Burmese, raising it 
at ASEAN, raising it at the United Nations, kind of does avert worse outcomes. And, you know, I we just don't know what would have happened if we had an administration like us there when the worst happened in 2017. Because has Donald Trump said a word about this? Has he called Aung San Suu Kyi? Like, I, I, we just don't know what a different yeah. approach would have looked like. Beyond that, though, when I reflect on it, and I was just in Myanmar for a couple of weeks, in part to kind of examine this, um, you know, a country like that has very weak institutions and no antibodies to the cancers in the world. If you look at the worst trends in the world today, uh, obviously the kind of authoritarian nationalist strain, religious and sectarian divisions, the corrosive effect of social media, which is tearing our country apart. Imagine what it's doing to a place like Burma, where they yeah. went from 0% internet penetration to 95%. And then you add in the role of China. And, you know, guess what's cutting right through Rakhine State where the Rohingya used to live? A pipeline that's part of Belt Road. At the same time, the Chinese are detaining a million Uyghurs in detention camps. All these trends converging on this already traumatized, deeply traumatized society that doesn't have strong institutions. I, I think you have to see it in the broader context to understand how something of this scale could happen. And you also have to understand that this has happened before in Burma. You know, there, there have been ethnic cleansings of the Rohingya in the 70s and the 90s as well. And, and what the answer is, I think, is, is just more relentless U.S. engagement. You know, if you pull back and sanction, it's not going to stop them. I, I still believe that, that the answer is more engagement, not less, to try to prevent these types of uh, atrocities. Let me just stay with Asia for a moment. Uh, two places that both you and Kurt uh, worked on uh, also were Vietnam and, and Laos. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about you know, why you were, were drawn uh, to both and, and what you both worked on collectively. Well, I think there was a, a project of the Obama presidency that was about a piece of it that I was really drawn to, moving past difficult history. I mean, obviously, literally the election of an African-American president is part of that. Abroad, the biggest thing I did in government, the Cuban normalization, was very much about saying, we're going to put this historical conflict behind us, and frankly, a, a misguided approach behind us. And obviously, Vietnam and Laos are, are a huge piece of this. Part of it is kind of hum, human, you know, human dignity, and Laos in particular. Once I started working on this issue, and Kurt you know, had kind of been at the front edge of this with Hillary Clinton and, and, and expanding uh, funding to try to clean up uh, the unexploded ordinance, people have to understand we dropped more bombs on Laos than Germany and Japan combined in World War II. Right, yeah. and there's 80 million unexploded cluster munitions and bo bomblets across that country. It is still killing children today. They can't develop as a country because they, how, how can a, an agricultural economy develop if they're their fields are covered in bombs. Right. And so I got very involved to, at the end at, at trying to really use Obama's visit to dramatically escalate this funding. And we got up to $90 million for, for three years, which still is, you know, drop in the bucket, frankly, what needs to be done, but was deeply appreciated by the Lao. Vietnam connected to that, we'd obviously already made further progress with Vietnam. What I found in both Vietnam and Laos is countries that, and from a strategic matter, did not want to fall under the dominance of China. <laughs> um, they didn't necessarily want to be our best friend. They wanted diversity, though. They wanted a diverse set of friends. They didn't want to just have the Chinese coming in and, and running their economy, right? And so whether it's TPP or whether it's our bilateral relations, um, 
I found this enormous eagerness to be connected to America, mm. um, in part as a hedge against Chinese dominance, um, but also out of a sincere effort on their part to, to move beyond our difficult past. So for me, I was drawn to it because of the historical component. And then while being engaged, kind of almost stumbled upon this strategic open door. <laughs> These people uh, don't want to just be a part of a Chinese dominated block. They want to they want to determine their own future. I want to turn to India because you and I got to work on that together. A lot of people don't recall President Obama was the only U.S. president to go to India twice, the only U.S. president to go to India's Republic Day. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to turn to a moment that you write about in the book and a lot of people don't actually know about, which involved the Paris Climate Agreement. And you mentioned uh, Copenhagen and how it kind of went south and that meeting was taking place with the Chinese and the Indians and, and others. But there was also a meeting that took place in Paris, uh, maybe in the fall of 2015, mm -hmm. between President Obama and Prime Minister Modi, which a lot of people would say was a bit of a turning point uh, not only in India's accession to Paris, but in in getting the South Africa's, the Brazil's, and others to come on board. Maybe, could you give us yeah. a window into what that meeting was about? Well, first of all, I'm not just saying you deserve credit for this, and, I, and I'll I'll describe why. Part of the credit, <laughs> President <laughs> Obama deserves a lot of the credit. I think he gets but, all of it. Because um, what happened is, look, by the time we got to Paris, the main holdout was India. You know, we had made this breakthrough with the Chinese at the end of 2014, where we announced our bilateral. Uh, emissions reductions targets, which became kind of the, the 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 core of the Paris Agreement. Here are the two biggest emitters, and and the rest of the year, everybody else is announcing their commitments, and the, the, an ambitious agreement is within reach. And the main holdout was India. People don't realize we had to move the State of the Union address right. to go to that. I mean, the normal thing would have been to say no, right. but you and others are saying no, no, Modi, you gotta you gotta make the personal connection. You gotta. Uh, you know, he's an ambitious politician like Xi, you, you, you got to appeal to that. And Obama really did develop a personal rapport with Modi over, over multiple meetings. So you can't have the interaction in Paris without that. Then in Paris, I'll never forget, Obama comes around the corner and the Indian negotiators are there before Modi. And they had been the holdup in the whole conference. And they start arguing with Obama. Uh, <laughs> I'd never seen anything like this for like 30 minutes because it took a while for Modi to get there. And he's literally arguing about the science of solar power and right. the fairness of doing this. Modi comes around the corner. He kind of looks, you know, mortified that this is happening. <laughs> I think people don't realize in the Indian system, Modi didn't necessarily pick these guys, you know. Um, and we go into the bilateral meeting. And Modi's, you can tell he's in this impossible position because he wants to do something on Paris. But his own system doesn't really want to. His politics back home are complicated on this. And finally, he kind of gets to the core of it and he says to Obama, look, I want to do something, but I got 300 million people without electricity. Um, and, and you're telling me I, I can't use coal and, and, and I got to do all these things. And I remember I'd never seen Obama do this. He didn't bring up his race a lot with other leaders. And he said, look, you know, I get it. I'm black. I'm African-American. I know what it's like to be in an unfair system where a bunch of people got rich on your back. And, and so he connected his African-American experience to colonialism. And he said, but I also have to live in the world that I'm in. And if I just made decisions based on that resentment, then I actually would never catch up. And we're telling you that you can get those people energy faster with solar power, and we're gonna help you do that. And you're gonna be the face of this. And, and they, we were gonna go and announce this big solar initiative with Bill right. Gates, like right after that, you know? And Modi just, you could tell he totally got it, you know, and he got, uh, you know, you never know the causality, what makes a leader do something, but it did feel like Obama, 
just kind of gave him that tug across. He wanted to go there and kind of let him there. Yeah, and if you if you hear it from Modi's side, he'll say, he has an interesting take on that meeting too. He'll say, Obama got my plight as well. So yeah. it was a yeah. bit of a meeting of the minds. And one thing Kurt always tells me, he said, you you can't underestimate the power of personal relationships and diplomacy yeah. and, and in what we get done mm-hmm. in the world. And, and you, so much of that relationship was about those two guys yeah. coming yeah. together and you can do a lot and it, and it breaks the conventional wisdom about, you know, big states fighting each other in the international system. Sometimes it comes down to two guys who wanna, or two women who wanna do something, uh, yeah. you know, be it based on their relationship. So Ben, you, you've blessedly uh, left Washington. You're yeah, living yeah. out on the West Coast, and I'm sure you're enjoying that. So Rich and I uh, live here in Washington, uh, highly contested political ground. I've been struck, one of the only issues on which there is at least some agreement is that some of the fundamentals of the U.S.-China relationship have to be reexamined, and we have to think carefully and clearly about where the relationship's going into the future. You know, I think there's a tendency to try to look for a strategy within the disparate actions of the Trump team. I'm not, I'm not really sure there is one. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure some people yeah. might have them, but as a collective it's endeavor. more an impulse than a strategy. Yeah, but so, you know, you're gonna be now a treasured voice in the Democratic Party about the way forward. How would you advise candidates and political advisors it's the most important bilateral relationship. The relationship is changing. Uh, I think President Xi does have some ambitions that it's possible we can work together, but it's also clear that uh, some of what he wants to accomplish on the global stage might be at the cost of uh, the U.S. position. How do we position ourselves uh, going forward? Well, I get the consensus that, look, you know, the, the idea that opening up to the Chinese was going to somehow prompt an evolution towards more responsible behavior and perhaps more democratic governance clearly didn't happen. (laughs) At the same time, number one, I I think shifting to the kind of bilateral confrontational approach that the Trump people have taken, uh, I think is a misguided approach. There was space to be a little tougher on these trade issues. Frankly, we couldn't because when we came in office, there was a financial crisis and we needed yeah. the Chinese. So if we started slapping tariffs on them, you know, it would have uh, it would have dragged us even further down into the muck. Um, but I still fundamentally believe that a stronger China is better for us than a weak China. And so how do you deal with this? First, I think I would advise what we were doing, which is you try to shape the environment around China. Right. And TPP is a part of that. Everything we did with ASEAN was a part of that. The relationships I talked about with Myanmar and Vietnam are part of that. Uh, that if we are present and we are helping to shape uh, an Asia Pacific or an Indo Pacific with uh, you know, more evolved institutions and rules and obviously higher quality trade practices that are in TPP, um, that, that that ultimately uh, is a more effective approach to shaping Chinese behavior than than just purely trying to muscle them bilaterally. And in a weird way, the bilateral kind of mercantilist approach Trump has taken is the, the mirror image of the Chinese approach, you know, and I think yeah. we need to be more strategic than that. In part, because I worry that that approach usually leads to pretty real conflicts, you know, um, and we shouldn't 
uh, underestimate the potential for that. So one is to get our team together, our allies and partners, and, and broad that out and, and build out institutions and norms and build platforms like we were trying to do with TPP and we were trying to do with the ASEAN countries, be opportunistic in our bilateral relationships, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia and with India, facilitate, encourage greater and closer collaboration among our partners, as is happening now between, say, India and Japan. Um, and then I would say where I would want to be more confrontational with what the Chinese are doing is in defense of our model abroad, yeah. you know, in Africa and Latin America and Southeast Asia to kind of more confidently and directly challenge this kind of creeping promotion of a corrupt brand of authoritarianism that the Chinese are trying to export um, and to care about some of these swing countries where, look, I was in Kenya. Um, do we want the Kenyan political parties to be trained in Beijing or do we want them to be working with us? Do we want Kenyan foreign students to go to China or do, they want, do we want them to come to the United States? Everything Trump is doing is pushing all of these countries closer to China. Uh, and so I think the competition has to be more about a more robust defense of our model of governance, which this administration is incapable of doing because they don't believe in, I think, our, our model. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say is that, look, there's there's going to be some confrontation. I, I think the technology issues were bubbling up even when we were there. It's, you know, underneath the big trade war is the, the more consequential question of technology. Um, but I still believe that this idea of just cutting the supply chain off uh, bifurcating, there's an American-led tech supply chain and a Chinese one, is a terribly misguided approach, both because it's going to end up putting our friends and allies in impossible situations because, you know, they have Chinese technology and we're telling them that they have to shed it. Um, but also, frankly, because it, it <laughs> the Chinese could win that battle. Uh, you know, technology, AI is rooted in data. And they're starting with a data set of over a billion people. Uh, and, and they're going to, so I, I think we have to think about this uh, in ways that, that play to our strengths. And our strengths are our convening power, our collective action power, our values. Our strengths might not necessarily be in some bilateral competition when they, at the end of the day, have a bigger market than us. I'm glad uh, Kurt started us down the political path because I just have to ask you, as you think about your major accomplishments, and when I say your, I mean the, the president's and the uh, White House's major accomplishments on the Iran nuclear deal, on the Paris Climate Agreement, on the Cuba yep. uh, opening, on TPP. Even had the Secretary of State go after the president for his, the speech uh, he gave at the beginning of the presidency on yeah. out of Middle East uh, policy. And it is kind of a valueless approach. It yeah. is a highly, as you just said, a highly transactional um, a approach. It's uh, vindictive. Vindictive. Well. Yeah. Small. Without a, <laughs> without a strategy. Yeah. I mean, how do we, uh, one, how does, I, I guess I know how it makes you feel, but, yeah. but where do we go from here when even someone like a John McCain is really berated in the current approach to the Republican uh, foreign policy approach? How do we get back to some reasonableness in our approach abroad? Well, um, first of all, I mean, look, some of these things are recoverable pretty quickly, right? If the Democrats win the election in 2020, I'm sure they'll come into Paris on the first day, you know, um, they'll probably restart the Cuba opening. Uh, TPP is still there and politics of trade are difficult in the Democratic Party, but those countries did TPP without us and someday so that's available. Um, 
if they don't start a war with the Iranians, which is probably a, a less than 50-50 proposition that, that they won't, um, the Iran nuclear deal is available, right? But putting all that aside, I'd say two things. One is you realize when you leave government that legacies, you know, are malleable and history will depend on, on what happens after you're there as much as when you're there. Um, and I, you know, I think about my political hero, and this gets back to where we start our conversation, Rich. My political hero is John F. Kennedy mm. when I was a kid and, and even when I was a young man. And I couldn't name you like five laws he passed. Uh, I probably couldn't even name you kind of five foreign policy achievements like the ones you just listed. But the impact he had on people in the world mm. and the things that those people did and the sense that he was at the leading edge of, of, of a kind of change that was taking place. That ended up becoming the civil, you know, part of a period that included the civil rights movement and you know, more progressive society and and a set of values that inspired people around the world. Like, I believe that Barack Obama is going to be remembered by history as one of those types of figures. Mike Pompeo, like, who's, no one's going to be talking about that guy in 30 <laughs> years. Like, Barack Obama right. is a world historical figure, not just because he had a list of accomplishments, because who he was and what he represented to people. And I look at the 2018 congressional election, the incoming House uh, leadership, th it looks like a 2008 Obama campaign rally. Right. It's younger. It's more diverse. It's more progressive. Um, they want to even be more progressive than, that's, than Obama. And that's exactly what Obama would want, right? Um, and, and that's a part of his legacy. There, we got multiple African-Americans running for president. More women and people of color are running for president. That's part of Obama's legacy, right? And so if the pendulum does swing and we move in that direction, I think people will see Obama as at the kind of front edge of a set of changes in our society. I think more problematically for our foreign policy, we undervalue the damage that's currently being done. Because what bothers people around the world, and I go to places, you know, important places like Singapore and, and Europe, and other, it's not just that Trump is president. It's the fact that America elected Trump as president, that we did this. And can they trust us again? And even if a Democrat wins this election and comes into these agreements, well, what if there's another Trump comes along and will just tear them up? It's going to take a while to gain back the currency of trust. And that's not going to be one president. That's going to have to be our business community, our civil society, like, you know, kind of going back out and <laughs> telling a new story to the world uh, and sustaining that over time so that we can we can regain that intangible kind of trust that that is currently being broken by this crowd. Yeah, really well said. Ben, thank you so much for coming and sitting down with us today. This has been a wonderful conversation. For those listeners who have not yet read his book, The World As It Is, it's out in paperback. We can't recommend it enough. Please take some time to check it out. It's passionately argued and beautifully written. And thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next time. Ben, let me just say thank you for your service. Uh, thanks for all you did. Thanks for um, all the impact that you had, not only here in Washington, but around the world. Well, thanks. A lot of that was with you guys. And so I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. It feels like an extension of all the, the times we had together in government. Great. Till next time. Thanks, thanks so much. Thanks.